Hello and welcome to Making the Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams. Today we are going to be in our final episode of this mini-series on the 18th century, where I have been asking myself uh, little mock orals questions and then answering them. This, our last question, is probably the one that I am most uncertain about, the one that I think troubles my view of the 18th century as a century of increasingly powerful organizations helping people to act a, a distance. It troubles the story because I think that the way that other historians have looked at this particular development is quite different than the way that I look at it. Whereas I think that stuff and networks and information are the really important uh, drivers of history, well, that and coal, of course, when other people look at this, they see language and identity and politics, stuff that I don't pay a lot of attention to. This topic is class, class in the 18th century. And so the question I have today is, what affected people's ideas about status and hierarchy over the 18th century? Now, before I jump into the actual answer that I would give, I might just, you know, telegraph what another kind of answer might look like and what's at stake in that. Another kind of answer would suggest that it was structural changes to the economy that led there to be new ways of people making political formulations. In other words, people were getting kicked off the land, which created a landless proletariat who were then forced into factories to work for the bourgeois middle class. This creates the middle class who own the factories, and it also creates the working class who have to work for them. Another way of seeing this might be to argue instead that the 18th century was not a century of divisions based on economics. Instead, the real heart of the century was a great unity knit together by church, by state, by locality. I disagree with both of these. For me, the broad story of the 18th century, well, the entire broad story of history, is of how changes in material everyday life force changes in organization. Here in the 18th century, new ways of working, new ways of consuming, new ways of living change the grounds that people use to imagine the communities that they are a part of. So the big processes here are urbanization that push people into uh, highly populous, very dense cities of strangers where they're forced to make new kinds of connections with other people. Sim another big process is the expansion of the national economy based on credit, which makes people have to read strangers at a distance and also makes people have to tailor their behavior for the uh, uh, inspection of other people who might be doing business with them. Another big driver of this is changes in material comfort. The rise of the consumer society that we just talked about that lets people have a you know nicer daily life. Now I just want to zoom out and make a big distinction between what I see as happening in the 18th century and what I see as happening in the 19th century. Because in both centuries I see uh, new kinds of uh, social formations, new kinds of community 
being made over and over again, and that being a really important part of the story. In the 18th century, the real driving forces are more about where people live and what people consume. Um, it's less conscious, and it's more about people trying to figure out new practices that are going to fit this new world of urban life and you know distant production and consumption. In the 19th century, it's much more about communication rather than urbanization and consumption. Um, the groups are much larger. Uh, it's more about people figuring out ways of laying claims to things, not people trying to figure out the kinds of practices that identify them. So it's important to note that in the 18th century, when we talk about class and the rise of class, it's all too simple to make this sweeping argument that class suddenly begins and that's it. But really, there's a lot of different ways of making communities, and they coexist all at once. A big one, and perhaps even the most important one in the 18th century, is the idea of hierarchy. This is not a way of viewing society as a divided thing, but rather is viewing society as one big unity that runs from king down to peasant. Everybody is lined up in order of status. Everybody's family has a uh, status hierarchy to it. You have uh, dad and then mom and then kids from oldest to youngest. And in the same way, all of society is arranged from the king up at the top all the way down through the aristocracy down to the middling sort and then the lower orders. But what's important is there's no clear dividing lines and everybody's in it together. Uh, the um, people who work, work because of their natural deference towards the people who rule. The people who rule, rule because of their natural abilities and ownership of the land and because of their patronizing uh, attitudes towards the lower orders. And by patronizing, we don't mean snooty people looking down their noses, but rather the idea of a generous father taking charge of his children. However, there is other ways of figuring out society uh, in the 18th century, and class is a really important part of it. I argue, however, that while as the 19th century this class is conscious of itself, in the 18th century it happens much more beneath the radar of the people at the time. How does this happen? Well, I'm going to discuss the rise of the middle class because it's very central to how I see um, the urban bourgeois uh, uh, culture that rises in the 19th century that I think takes over the world. Now, if you were my examiner, you would be, you know, wagging your eyebrows at me because I'm already wading into a minefield. The historiography of the middle class is kind of funny because every single book about the middle class, no matter what era it is, says that the middle class is rising and it has about a quarter of all the people in it. Um, this obviously isn't true. The middle class can't be rising from 1700 to 1850. Um, it's more a trick of the light. But it says something about what the middle class stands for. The middle class stands for self-improvement, for social mobility, for accumulation, for gaining. And I think that the 18th century story really is a story about the rise of the middle class. I define them um, broadly by people who have freedom constrained. 
We can define them more technically as households who have access to significant capital, including social capital, like uh, having particular skills, or even cultural capital, like knowing the right people or having manners. However, even though they have significant capital, they still have to work. That's what distinguishes them from the upper classes. Their behavior is marked by the desire to preserve and to accumulate this capital. But there's a problem in the 18th century, or perhaps an opportunity, and that is that the routes into this capital-owning yet working class are changing. In the early 18th century, people would get uh, to be middle class through a well-worn process of apprenticeship, saving, marriage, and then business ownership or uh, mastery. If you were a farm laborer, you would um, live in a farm as a domestic servant until your mid-20s, and then when you saved up enough money for your own farm, you would uh, get married and buy your own farm and then become a householder yourself and employ your own servants. If you lived in the city, you would have a similar kind of process. Your parents would pay some money to an artisan to employ you as a, an apprentice for seven, eight, nine, ten years. You would learn the mysteries of the trade. You'd become a journeyman and continue to save up money. And once you got enough money, you would get your own workshop, become your own master, and in time, get married and have your own servants. There is a connection between life cycle and capital ownership. But most of the people who went through the process, if they survived, would eventually become capital owners and, and identically heads of household. This changes um, as the economy changes. There's an increasingly large number of urban artisans and rural workers who are never able to save up enough money to transition from being workers to being um, masters. We can think of this as the rise of the proletariat, the rise of people who work who do not have access to capital. But this does not mean that the middle class is shrinking. Instead, there are new routes into capital ownership, a lot of times through new services that are rising up in the new kind of uh, abstract distant economy. Um, these are people like lawyers, doctors, government officials, uh, writers, um, uh, insurance agents, bankers, traders, merchants, all of these new kinds of uh, service industries are growing up in the urban centers that are marked by increasing uh, population and thus by increasing diversity of work. But there remains a problem. How in the middle class family do you preserve the capital when you have children? So a key problem in the middle-class family is how to educate the children to be middle-class. Being middle-class is hard. It requires hard work. It requires self-control. It requires planning. Think of all of the things that your parents yelled at you about when you were a kid. You know, keep good time. Keep good accounts. Don't spend too much money. Don't hang out with the wrong sorts of people. These are difficult lessons to master, and they were even more difficult in the 18th century because they were not common currency. They were not held by their lower classes or by the upper classes who did their own thing. But the middle classes needed to inculcate these values into their members. It used to be done through the apprenticeship programs, but now that was shifting. So you saw this in worries about uh, dissipation, 
about young children with money masturbating, having sex with too many people, gambling, spending too much money. There was a slippery slope between minor moments of uh, indiscretion, like masturbation, and then the entire edifice of the middle-class home crumbling in the next generation. Um, this is a continuous problem of the middle class. If you read Thomas Mann's Buddenbrooks, perhaps the last gasp of the uh, Victorian middle class, the entire story of the middle class family hinges on the artistic, sensitive, um, reasonable, sophisticated last generation of the family who, through all of the great artistic um, and emotional development of their lives, thinks themselves out of the middle class. But there were new routes of training and education, especially for sons who have to deal with the difficult arts of self-control. Um, there were practices of teaching writing and accounting through dissenting academies. Um, another solution was associations. A lot of urban associational life were kind of replacements for the old apprenticeship programs that could teach people all of these good middle-class values of writing well, of mathematics, of dealing with people, of keeping regular time. And there was another process that happened in the later part of the 18th and the early part of the 19th century. And that is the reconfiguration of the home itself. The home went from being a place where things were produced to a place where people were produced. In the 18th century, in the early 18th century, the middle class home might be a workshop. Uh, people would work in it. People would make the things that would make the middle class home money. Towards the later part of the 18th century, the middle-class home became a place where middle-class children were raised to have all of those good middle-class virtues. And here we see the birth of the separate spheres. The men who've already been inoculated with middle-class virtues can go out into the world and be tempted. Why? Because they know how to be tempted. They have been educated. The children remain at home and get educated in these virtues. And they get educated, importantly, through new forms of religion, through a spiritual regeneration of the home based on evangelical purposes, where prayer, um, morality, and female religiosity are the ways that people learn the kinds of middle-class virtues that allow them to uh, participate in the market economy. Now, I can talk similarly about the working class. I'm less interested in them, in part because the story's been told so well by E.P. Thompson. He argues that in much the same way as the experience of uh, working in a large dispersed credit economy where you're always at risk of failure creates the middle class, so too does the experience of being a dispossessed artisan um, who is politically stomped on helps create the working class. But I also want to maintain that this uh, class-based idea of society is just one of many ways that people look at how their world is structured. And the old hierarchical way of looking at society remains in force and remains perhaps even stronger than the class-based idea. Um, here we can perhaps see nationalism, uh, the burgeoning sense of nationalism that links together all of the different disparate communities of the nation um, under the idea of a Protestant warlike naval state as perhaps the apotheosis of this hierarchical way of looking at things. 
Thanks very much for listening to this episode of Making of a Historian. Um, if you like the show, rate and review us on iTunes. Uh, if you have a question for me about these kinds of topics, please send them to me at at Mackie Teacher, M-A-C-K-I-E-T-E-A-C-H-E-R. Thanks very much to Jonathan Lear, who uh, gave us the great music. If you like the intro and outro music, buy Jonathan Lear's stuff on Bandcamp or visit his SoundCloud page. And thank you very much to Duncan Barton, who did our images. Uh, I also have to thank everybody who's helped me so far, all of my fellow grad students who've talked to me, um, my advisors who have uh, berated me and encouraged me in turns, um, and to all of my listeners. Uh, I will see you guys tomorrow where I'm going to be doing something that I don't know yet because I have half the plan. Um, thanks very much.